Hello and welcome back to the Church's True Faith Crisis and Reconstruction podcast series. I'm Rob Terry and today's episode is on polygamy. This is not an episode I looked forward to. I truly enjoy talking about all these apologetic issues, Book of Mormon, historicity, Book of Abraham, church history, all these different scripture issues. Polygamy is never one that I, I like talking about. I don't blog about it. I don't jump into discussions online. It's a downer topic and I don't like talking about it. So why am I doing this episode? I think it's important to what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to provide a holistic approach to the restoration to all of the CES letter type issues, all of the faith crisis issues, a holistic approach that tackles everything. And I think all these issues are related. Polygamy is related to Book of Mormon historicity, is related to the first vision, is related to priesthood restoration. All these things are wound together and you can't talk about any one of them separately. So I'm going to give my take on polygamy here, even though it's not something I really love to do. We're going to talk about Nauvoo polygamy, mostly related to Joseph Smith. Then we'll also get into some of the late Nauvoo, King Follett doctrine, and some of the other revelations at, towards the end of Joseph's life. So let's get started. So polygamy was never a real core issue in my faith crisis. I've always known there's been polygamy. Of course, we all know that Brigham Young practiced polygamy. I never understood that Joseph practiced polygamy in terms of sexual relationships. I knew that Joseph had the revelation and that he was sealed to multiple wives, but I always assumed those were non-sexual sealings because he only lived with Emma and it hasn't been talked about a lot prior to the Gospel Topics essay. This is another one that the church is doing a really great job with, getting more open. The Gospel Topics essay that came out in 2013 I thought was extremely illuminating, almost more so than I expected them to do. They acknowledged some very difficult aspects of Nauvoo polygamy that I think was very brave of the church, good job. And there's more to do, of course, uh, little by little, we'll get better, but the church is doing a good job on this. So like many people with pioneer ancestry, I'm related to people who practice polygamy. My ancestor, Nancy Naomi Alexander Tracy, is someone I really like reading. She kept a journal and did a life sketch and had some really fascinating adventures with her family. Her husband took on multiple wives once they got to Utah, and she talks about it. She didn't love it, but she accepted it. Her son, Helen Henry Tracy, was a polygamist. He went to jail for it, like many people in the late 1800s in Utah did. On my wife's side, she's also related to a lot of polygamists. Lemuel Hardison Red is a well-known early church figure who settled southern Utah. And out of his line came Bruce Red McConkie and the Romney family. Nearly all of us have been affected by polygamy somehow. This was something from a very young age. This issue and the priesthood ban, for some reason, I took a position that I guess was a little more unorthodox than I thought. I thought it was pretty normal, but from a from a teenager or a missionary forward, I just kind of had an idea that the prophets got some things wrong, especially starting with Brigham Young, went off track a little bit, and went into polygamy and had the priesthood ban. And then the Lord reversed it, and we got out of polygamy. It was just for a short time period. No harm, no foul, move on. And same with the priesthood ban. Of course, that lasted a lot longer, but it was reversed. And so I always just considered this is just something that the prophets didn't quite get right. They fixed it. No big deal. Then later on, when I'm reading during my faith crisis time period and reading a lot of books and research and read about Joseph's involvement in polygamy, then that was very troubling for me. And I, I understand why it would be extremely troubling for any Latter-day Saint to read about Joseph Smith's polygamy. We'll talk about that today. So total number of wives, Fair Mormon listed at 39. I've seen numbers in the 30s. Let's use Brian Hill's number of 35. Brian Hill's is a faithful Latter-day Saint scholar who published a huge three-volume set on polygamy and of the faithful Latter-day Saint scholars, he's the one who knows the most about polygamy. And 
he consulted with the church on the Gospel Topics essay, and I'm going to use his research mostly today. There's some aspects that critics argue with him, and I'll note that from time to time, but I don't think it's important to try to nail down a lot of these details because I feel like the research that Brian Hales acknowledges gives a clear enough picture that we can come to our own educated conclusions without worrying about all these details that some of the critics haggle with him over. So 35 wives, and then the question is, how many of these were sexually consummated? And you say, why do we want to talk about sex that's creepy, that's perverted? And I agree with you. I don't want to talk about Joseph Smith and sex. But anytime a prophet is revealing doctrine and it ends up with the prophet having sexual relationships with the women in his congregation, then sex becomes a topic. It becomes a question of what's going on here and something that we need to make sense of. And so let's do our best. Of the 35 wives... Some of them definitely were not sexually consummated. There were two types of sealings. One was eternity only, and one was for time and all eternity. And it's generally accepted that the eternity only sealings were likely not sexually consummated, and the time and eternity sealings likely were consummated. And so Brian Hill says 35 total marriages while that's a large number, it is important to note that at least 13 and possibly as many as 20 were non-sexual eternity-only ceilings. Brian Hales suggests the number that were sexually consummated to be about 12, maybe as high as 15, he says. Critics might push that number higher into the 20s, but let's just use Brian Hales' number 12 to 15. Another controversial aspect was that he married young girls, the youngest marriage was 14 years old. Most of them were 18 or older, but there were some that were younger than that. And a pushback from conservative apologists on this is that this is a different time and place, and marriages of 16, 17-year-old girls was a little bit more common. My grandmother got married at age 16, but then a critical response to that is that Yes, some women were married as young as 16, 17, but it was usually like to a 19 or 22-year-old boy. It wasn't like a 17-year-old to like a 38-year-old man. That would have been rare. Brian Hill says, The pattern in Utah was to allow ceilings to younger women, but not to live with the woman until she was 18. I believe this policy began with the prophet, but there is no way to prove it. So Brian Hale's theory is that Joseph didn't have sexual relationships with any girl that was younger than 18 years old. In the Gospel Topics essay, it references this 14-year-old as the youngest marriage, and it says that he married the youngest that was just a few months shy of 15, and the church got a lot of criticism for saying it that way. And Elder Stephen Snow went on Rick Bennett Gospel tangents podcast and did an interview with rick and rick asked him about this and elder snow he's a great guy he gave a really stand-up answer to that he just confidently just owned it and said in hindsight we very much wish we would have not done that to say she was just a few months shy of 15 we should have just said she was 14 getting called out on that is entirely appropriate we should have just said she was 14 so good job elder snow Another controversial aspect of Joseph's polygamy was that he sometimes married other men's wives. Brian Hale says he married 14 women who were currently married to another man. But Brian Hale's, and this is one of his, this is probably his most controversial area. He believes that Joseph did not practice polyandry in the sense that even though he was married to these women, he didn't have sexual relationships with any of them except maybe if they were in a situation where they were not having sexual relationships with their other husband, or they truly believed that in their heart they were no longer married to that person. He says that 11 of the 14 were the non-sexual eternity-only ceilings, and then two of the remaining three were to women who were physically separated from their husbands and had the equivalence of a church divorce. There's a few of these wives that it's might be a stretch to say that he wasn't having sexual relationships at the same time that they believe they were married to another man. 
and so this is probably Brian Hale's most controversial area. There's at least one person, Sylvia Sessions. There's evidence that she was having sexual relationships with both Joseph and her husband in the same time period. And then there's a couple others that are very controversial also. Another controversial aspect of this is that it was very secretive. It was illegal. And Joseph was trying to keep it on the down low. He there were there was kind of an inner circle of people that knew and then an outer circle of people that didn't know and there was all these rumors and accusations flying back and forth and people wondering what's going on emma didn't know about it and then even when she did she may not have known all of what he's doing behind her back he seemed to be acting a little sketchy with emma doing secret things behind her back and we'll get into that in a minute Another controversial aspect is that Joseph's behavior with these young women when he was courting them and asking them to be married appears to be a little coercive at times. On the low end, you could say coercive. On the high end, you could even say extremely manipulative and even predatory. And when you read these firsthand accounts, most of them, I can't say most of them, but because I don't know the numbers, but a large portion of these women rejected him at first or were very upset about it at first. And it took some time and kind of, and maybe some coercion to, to convince them that they really should do this. Another controversial aspect that the church essay goes into is Fanny Alger. She was the very first wife and she's a little bit out of place. It took place either in 1833 when she was 16 or 1835 when she was 18. Scholars argue over this. Brian Hales and Don Bradley puts it at 1835 when she's 18. So let's go with that. But still, even in 1835, it's kind of out of place as the very first one. No other marriages come until 1841, six years later. And the revelation where the sealing keys were delivered to Joseph was in the temple at Kirtland in 1836. And so Fanny Alger came before that. So it's confusing. And some of the people that knew about the Fanny Alger case called it an affair. And so it's unclear whether this was maybe just an affair or whether it was an actual sealing and wedding and polygamous marriage. But the more I learn about this, the more I'm kind of leaning more towards that Joseph probably did view this as a polygamous marriage. He started talking about polygamy and thinking about polygamy in 1831. There's a few things that are going on early in Joseph's time as a prophet that he's clearly thinking about this and going in this direction. Another aspect of this is how messy it was. It was just very disorganized and unclear and inconsistent how this was practiced. Men were sealed to men as brothers and as in familial sealings, uh, sealing as friends, sealing as brothers. Joseph was sealed to old women. He was sealed to some women who he had very little contact with. There's just a lot of kind of weirdness and inconsistency with how this was rolled out. You know, obviously today we have very organized, clear understanding of who gets sealed to who and what the sealing ordinance is and how it's performed. But it just wasn't like that at the beginning. I'm sorry if I'm presenting this a little programmatic and focusing on Joseph Smith's perspective. It's devastatingly sad what happened to a lot of these young women. And I think all their stories should be told and they're important to understand and I highly recommend Lindsay Hansen Parks, your polygamy podcast to learn more about each of these women. But be forewarned, it's not light and easy content. Now let's go to Richard Bushman's rough stone rolling and let's get some primary accounts and Richard Bushman's take on things to kind of get a feel of what's going on in Nauvoo in this time period. On August 18, Joseph wrote to Newell and Elizabeth Whitney asking them to come with their 17-year-old daughter, Sarah Ann. Three weeks before, on July 27, Joseph had married Sarah Ann. The Whitney's had reacted to the marriage request with the usual horror, but had agreed to pray about it. They prayed unceasingly until it finally we were seemingly wrapped in a heavenly vision, a halo of light encircled us, and we were convinced in our minds that God heard and approved our prayers. Here's some text from that letter that Joseph wrote to the Whitney's. 
If you three would come and see me in this, my lonely retreat, it would afford me great relief of mine. If those with whom I am allied do love me, now is the time to afford me succor. In the days of exile, for you know I foretold you of these things. I am now at Carlos Granger's, just back of Brother Hiram's farm. It is only one mile from town. The nights are very pleasant indeed. All three of you can come and see me in the forepart of the night. Let Brother Whitney come a little ahead and knock at the southeast corner of the house at the window. It is next to the cornfield. I have a room entirely by myself. The whole matter can be attended to with most perfect safety. I know it is the will of God that you should comfort me now in this time of affliction, or not at all. Now is the time or never, but I have no need of saying any such thing to you, for I know the goodness of your hearts, and that you will do the will of the Lord when it is made known to you. The only thing to be careful of is to find out when Emma comes, then you cannot be safe. But when she is not here, there is the most perfect safety. Only be careful to escape observation as much as possible. I know it is a heroic undertaking, but so much the greater friendship and the more joy. When I see you, I will tell you all my plans. I cannot write them on paper. Burn this letter as soon as you read it. Keep all locked up in your breast. My life depends upon it. Back to rest on ruling. Emma was more resistant. She probably knew of plural marriage, but had no idea of the extent of her husband's practice. Aware of her opposition, Joseph could not bring himself to explain what he was doing. Caught between the plural marriage revelation and Emma's opposition, he moved ahead surreptitiously, making the recovery of his domestic life almost impossible. One story told in Utah in the 1880s had Emma pushing one of Mormondom's Mormondom's most honored women, Eliza Roxy Snow, down the stairs upon discovering she was married to Joseph, but the evidence for the incident is shaky. So that's a famous story that Emma might have pushed Eliza R. Snow down the stairs, upset about something related to polygamy. And I think scholars are divided over whether that actually happened. Maybe it probably didn't happen, but it appears something happened because Eliza was in the house and then she was gone and there was some hostility between Emma and Eliza. So now Joseph is trying to get Emma on board with this polygamy thing. And he's trying to convince her, and she's finally agreed to it. Then she gets to pick the wives. In May 1843, she approved two wives, Eliza and Emily Partridge, daughters of Edward Partridge and helpers in the Smith household. The sisters were an awkward selection because Joseph had already married them two months earlier in March without Emma's knowledge. So Bushman believes that Emma finally got on board with polygamy, and the reason is because she agreed to be sealed to Joseph herself. On a cold Sunday evening, May 28, 1843, in the upper room of Joseph's red brick store, Joseph and Emma were sealed for eternity by the powers of the priesthood. Unfortunately, the reconciliation did not last. Emma had agreed to the plural marriages, but she immediately regretted it. Before the day was over, she turned around or repented of what she had done and kept Joseph up till very late in the night talking to him. Emily Partridge wrote in the 1880s, She kept close watch of us. If we were missing for a few minutes and Joseph was not at home, the house was searched from top to bottom and from one end to the other, and if we were not found, the neighborhood was searched until we were found. So Richard Bushman is painting this picture of polygamy where Emma is obviously traumatized by this, and she's watching him closely. Even she's using the Relief Society to help kind of act as spies following around to to see what Joseph is doing. Again, it was awkward because there's women in Emma's Relief Society that are married to Joseph. And so, again, you've got this inner circle and outer circle and this secrecy. And Emma's trying to use a Relief Society to follow him. But then some of them don't know if they should be loyal to Joseph or Emma. It's confusing and it's just not a good situation. Back to rest unrolling. Joseph was unsure how far the usually composed Emma would go in her anger. Near the end of June, he warned William Clayton that Emma wanted to lay a snare for me. Knowing her basic faith, Hiram thought Joseph should show Emma a written revelation on plural marriage. In July, Hiram agreed that writing the revelation would win over Emma. To be sure of its accuracy, he asked Joseph to use the Urim and Thummim, but the prophet said he knew it perfectly. On July 12, 1843, Joseph dictated to William Clayton for three hours in the upper office of his store. Emma once said Hiram's words were irresistible to her, but when he presented the revelation, she was adamant. He came away from Emma saying that he had never received a more severe talking to in his life. So Joseph is worried about Emma. He doesn't know how to handle her. 
they decide together, maybe if she had a revelation, she would understand. They appoint poor Hiram to be the deliverer of bad news. He gives Emma this revelation, reads it to her, and she goes ballistic, and rightfully so. More from Roughstone Rolling. Even with his marriage at stake, he could not back down. Meanwhile, Emma kept watch for suspicious signs. She was vexed and angry when she found two letters from Eliza Snow in Joseph's pocket and demanded to know if Clayton had delivered them. The next day, Emma learned from Flora Woodworth, another plural wife, that Joseph had given her a gold watch. Emma demanded its return. His marriages had dropped off sharply after July 1843. During his confrontation with Emma between July 12 and 16, Joseph may have agreed to add no more. He told Clayton she would divorce him if he did. In the winter, Emma fulfilled her role as president's wife to the utmost. On Christmas Day 1843, the Smiths entertained a large party at their house, spending the evening in a most cheerful and friendly manner in music and dancing. Joseph's martyrdom was in June of 1844, and for the last year of his life, he didn't really do much with polygamy. Richard Bushman seems to think that he and Emma reconciled and that the last year or so of their life was relatively peaceful. And there's this interesting quote that's controversial in whether or not uh, Joseph Smith actually said this, but William Marks in 1853 said that Joseph Smith three weeks before his death, he was talking to Joseph Smith one morning in the street, and he said to me, Brother Marks, we are ruined people. I asked, how so? He said, this doctrine of polygamy or spiritual wife system that has been taught and practiced among us will prove our destruction and overthrow. I have been deceived. In reference to its practice, it is wrong, it is a curse to mankind, and we shall all have to leave the United States soon unless it can be put down and its practice stopped in the church. So that's very interesting. I don't know if that's true or not, but I love a good redemption story and it may be naive, but I would like to think that Joseph Smith learned from this and recognized that, and that the spirit worked with him and taught him that this was wrong and that he needed to repent. And he went willingly to Carthage. And even when he knew he was probably going to be killed, I don't know. It's all theoretical, but I would love to view Joseph Smith that he recognized his his sins and his mistakes and wanted to repent of them. Back to that revelation that Joseph Smith gave. That's now in our section 132. Section 132 is obviously very controversial. It wasn't added until 1876. And in fact, before 1876, there was a section in the Doctrine and Covenants that defined the church's position on marriage and denounced polygamy and said that marriage should be between one man and one wife, even though all this polygamy was going on while that was on the books. That was removed in 1876, and Section 132 was put in. There's a lot of talk about whether we should remove Section 132, and I'm a traditionalist, and I think that we should keep our scriptures intact, even if there's things in them that are very wrong. Right now, Black Lives Matter is a is a big thing, and I'm a supporter of that. And there's a lot of talk that maybe we should remove some of our racist scriptures, especially the Curse of Ham that's in Book of Abraham, or in the Book of Mormon, where there's a couple of verses that talk about God giving a curse to the Lamanites that was their skin color or at least it appears that way from Nephi's perspective. And the church has clearly disavowed that and says that this does not mean that God cursed people with black skin. And people think we should remove those scriptures. I think that a better way to approach this is to just keep our scriptures intact and just note where we have some cultural and misunderstandings that have crept in that are wrong and just note where they're wrong. The Old Testament has that passage where God is telling them to commit genocide. There's a lot of things in the Old Testament that maybe should go. There's some things in the New Testament that maybe should go, like telling women they're not allowed to teach. There's some things in various of our scriptures that are very offensive to us now. I think a better approach is just to keep them as is and just note where we disagree with them in, according to today's prophet. I love some of section 132. It's where we talk about the sealing power, and I love the concept of sealing and eternal marriage. Verse 19, 
And again, verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife by my word, which is my law, and by the new and everlasting covenant, and it is sealed unto them by the Holy Spirit of promise, by him who is anointed, unto whom I have appointed this power and the keys of this priesthood, and it shall be said unto them, ye shall come forth in the first resurrection. Ye shall inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and powers. It shall be done unto them in all things whatsoever my servant hath put upon them in time and throughout all eternity, and shall be a full force when they are out of the world, and they shall pass by the angels and the gods which are set there to their exaltation and glory in all things. Beautiful words. I love going to the temple and seeing live weddings and seeing live ceilings and see these kids get married and think about these powerful words and that they're connected now as an eternal family and and see them walk out of the temple together like a new adam and eve with the world there for them to take and all these blessings and power sustaining them as a new family unit i think it's beautiful i love it but then verse 51 the revelation turns and addresses Emma, and this is where it gets a little dicey. Verse 53, For I am the Lord thy God, and ye shall obey my voice. And I give unto my servant Joseph that he shall be made ruler over many things, for he hath been faithful over a few things, and from henceforth I will strengthen him. And I command mine handmaid, Emma Smith, to abide and cleave unto my servant Joseph and to none else. But if she will not abide this commandment, she shall be destroyed, saith the Lord, for I am the Lord thy God, and will destroy her if she abide not in my law. So I think it's okay for us to say that's not okay. Spiritual abuse is a thing where someone in a religious setting uses their religious authority to dominate and manipulate and put forward their own personal perspective in a way that makes it seem like it's God's perspective in a power imbalance setting where they're pushing this down onto someone else. This we can call spiritual abuse, and I think this is an example. I think it's okay for us to say that. We can say Joseph Smith was a prophet. We can say he made mistakes. We can say this was one of them. I think that's fine. Someone might say, well, why do you have to go there? I think it's important for us as a church and a faith community and a people to identify when things are not okay, because if we don't, then I think we suffer morally if we're afraid to address what's wrong. And I'm trying to do this here very respectfully to Joseph Smith and to what he accomplished and to respectfully point out what I disagree with. Okay, let's talk about the angel with a drawn sword. This really surprised me when the essay came out. For some reason, I thought that they might, that the church might go in a direction where they're trying to say the angel with a drawn sword account is maybe hearsay or attribute it to late accounts and say that it's, you know, sketchy history and that that didn't really happen. But they owned up to it. They said in the essay, it says, when God commands a difficult task, he sometimes sends additional messengers to encourage his people to obey. Consistent with this pattern, Joseph told associates that an angel appeared to him three times between 1834 and 1842 and commanded him to proceed with plural marriage when he hesitated to move forward. During the third and final appearance, the angel came with a drawn sword, threatening Joseph with destruction unless he went forward and obeyed the commandment fully. He used this story about the angel and the drawn sword threatening him to a lot of the girls that he was courting and trying to get them to marry him. You could say that maybe he's doing it in a little bit of a manipulative way sometimes. I don't like how some of these accounts come across where Joseph is talking about this angel with a drawn sword and applying it to specifically that girl's situation where she had to marry him or else he'd be killed. From Zina Huntington. Zina Huntington's a sad story. Joseph originally proposed to her a month before she was married. She said no to him then and married Henry Jacobs. But then Joseph proposed again later into her marriage and she said yes. Henry Jacobs seems very upset over this whole thing. Then later, after Joseph's martyrdom, Brigham Young sends Henry Jacobs on a mission and marries Zina and she eventually moves in with Brigham and Henry Jacobs is just kind of left out on his own. It's kind of a heartbreaking story. So from Zion Huntington, she told of Joseph's remark in relation to the revelation on celestial marriage, how an angel came to him with a drawn sword and said, if he did not obey this law, he would have lost his priesthood. And in the keeping of it, Joseph did not know, but it would cost him his life. Also from Zion Huntington, 
Joseph sent word to me by my brother saying, tell Zina, I put it off and put it off till an angel with a drawn sword stood by me and told me if I did not establish that principle upon the earth, I would lost my position and my life. And a note on this whole concept of polyandry and why it's such a special controversial aspect of polygamy. It's kind of sexist, isn't it? Like, it's okay if a young girl is taken into polygamy. That's okay. But, oh, if a girl is already married, and she's the property of her husband. Oh, you can't marry her now because she's owned by her husband. It's kind of a sexist concept to really obsess about polyandry at all anyway. Polygamy is somewhat common throughout the history of humans, but polyandry is not. And so I guess polyandry is extra controversial. So Joseph uses this angel withdrawn sword story. He pulls it out to try to convince these girls to say yes to marry him. I believe Joseph is having authentic religious experiences when he's having these angel visions, but I do not think that we can say that we can glean absolute information from God from any of these spiritual encounters. I can't explain technically, scientifically how or why, but I believe they're authentic. There could be something happening from God down to Joseph. And I think also there's something that Joseph's creating somehow, subconsciously, somehow in his mind. Maybe there's an impression that there's some sort of revelation that's important related to sealing that Joseph is ignoring. And maybe Joseph's at a deep, deep subconscious level, he transforms that message from God, that he transforms that into a spiritual encounter with an angel with a drawn sword commanding him to do it. I think there's two things going on. There's some sort of authentic religious experience, and then there's some sort of humanistic creation in the interpretation of the spiritual event. And I think it's consistent with Angel Moroni. I don't think it's absolutely true that God would send down Angel Moroni and have him behave like a trickster treasure guardian by telling him to bring Alvin with him the next year and and giving him the plates and then jerking him back saying he looked away, you know, like a trickster treasure guardian or giving him the shock that he had that shock. That's a common treasure lore kind of thing. I don't think God's going to send down Angel Moroni and give him instructions to act like a treasure guardian, but I think there's something happening authentically, spiritually, in Joseph's mind, and then Joseph's somehow interpreting that. I think all these spiritual encounters that Joseph is having can be described in a similar kind of process. We can think of all the angelic visitations in Scripture throughout history. I don't think there's a single one where the person is physically threatened with their life by the angel. And it just doesn't make sense to me logically that this is the one time where he's threatening someone's life. It was temporary. We got out of it within about 50 years. It doesn't seem logical. It goes against our morality. It's caused so many problems. I don't think it's faithless to have a view of God. And when we're encountering information about what God does and what God doesn't do, I don't think it's faithless to want to retain a view of God that's loving and logical and consistent. And if we're faced with times in church history or scripture where God isn't like that, then I think it's okay to push that back on a human and say, that's not God behaving this way. In 2016, Carolyn Pearson authored the book, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, Haunting the Hearts in Heaven of Mormon Women and Men. She tells him an anecdote. She went to a friend and she said, we're getting up there in years. How are you feeling about the next life? Her friend's husband had recently passed away. She was a widow. And she said, I just hope my husband hasn't married someone else already. And she thought, that is so sad that we as women have to deal with that in this church. And it got her thinking. She put out a request for information and got 8,000 replies from Women, mostly women and some men, talking about how polygamy is still affecting members of our church today. Here's a list of ways that she found that polygamy is still affecting us. It's affecting self-esteem of women feeling inferior to men. It's affecting marriages and marriage dynamics. It's affecting sexuality and how we think about sex. This kind of concept came up again and again, and this is a quote from one of her replies. It confirms that the center of the Mormon universe is maleness with females 
plural, zzz, females, orbiting around. That's tough as a Latter-day Saint male to think that females of the church are viewing things this way. It's not right. We need to process this information and try to make it right. One of the ways that it affects things the most commonly is that if a husband and wife are married in the temple and then they get divorced, and then if the husband wants to remarry, he can do that without any special permission because men are allowed more than one woman to be sealed to according to polygamy, but women are not. After a divorce, if a woman wants to get remarried, she has to get special permission and it's a huge hassle and it's not always granted and it's a real problem. This is a high-profile issue right now because President Nelson and President Oaks are both remarried to new wives, and that's a normal thing. It's a normal human process that when people get old and one of the spouses dies, the other spouse commonly remarries for companionship, and this is what humans do. There's nothing wrong with President Nelson or President Oaks. But it's kind of in our face right now because we're imagining as a church that when President Nelson and President Oaks die, that when they go to Celestial Kingdom, they're going to have their two wives with them married. And that's disturbing for a lot of people to think about. It's still very much part of our doctrine of the hereafter and the eternities. I believe in God, but I believe he's separating himself from religion and organized matter and allowing humans to have free agency and choosing how they come to him and kind of figuring it out for themselves. This is how I view religion. And so people ask me, in that case, what makes Scripture special or what's different about Scripture than other things? And a lot of the answer to this is the fruits. When we're moved by the Holy Ghost and over time, the same Scriptures and the same teachings are moving people by the Holy Ghost to believe to perceive that is true and to believe that it's true and to follow that and to reap benefits of living those laws and principles. That's how scripture is confirmed to us that we know something is true in my mind. And so we can look at polygamy and look at the fruits of polygamy to evaluate it. And I think the fruits of polygamy are really bad. Polygamy costs the church dearly. Oliver Cowdery was one of our great minds in the beginning and helped Joseph Smith do so much. He left the church. He was excommunicated in 1838, primarily because he was accusing Joseph Smith of adultery. This is over the Fanny Alger episode. Oliver Cowdery did not like that whole episode with Joseph and Fanny Alger, and he was eventually excommunicated because he wouldn't shut up about it. Sidney Rigdon, also one of our great minds, was not comfortable with polygamy, and he became disassociated with the church late in Joseph Smith's years, largely over polygamy. William Law was in the First Presidency, and he apostatized due to polygamy. He became an enemy of Joseph Smith due to polygamy. Polygamy was the reason Emma didn't come out west to Utah. She had a real conflict with Brigham Young, and it was largely over polygamy. Joseph's death can't be explained outside of polygamy. The atmosphere in Nauvoo was getting more and more highly charged. It would be overly simplistic to say polygamy was the only reason that the atmosphere in Nauvoo was getting tense, but it was a large part of it. William Law turned on Joseph Smith, and he and some other former Mormons wanted to expose Joseph Smith and what he was doing, and they created the Nauvoo Expositor, little two-page newspaper that they published on June 7th, 1844. You can go online and read the Nauvoo Expositor, and they're accusing Joseph Smith of wrongdoing, primarily related to polygamy and adultery and sexual-related crimes. Some other things they didn't like were his use of power and also some of his teachings related to King Follett doctrine that we'll go over in a minute. So they published this on June 7, 1844. Joseph doesn't like it. On June 10th, Joseph with the Nauvoo City Council declared the Nauvoo Expositor a public nuisance. They went in and destroyed their printing press. The state government stepped in. Joseph is charged. He turns himself in. He goes to Carthage, and then a mob forms. It's some of the same people that are involved with Nauvoo Expositor, and they kill him. Really makes you wonder if all this was unnecessary. 
if they could have avoided it, if they wouldn't have gotten into polygamy. But these were the fruits of Nauvoo polygamy. When you listen to the stories of the women in polygamy, some of them testified of the principle, and they were faithful Latter-day Saints to the end. But if you read some of the accounts and get into it, I feel like a lot of them are very sad. Helen Mark Kimball was the 14-year-old we referenced. Let's hear a little bit from Helen Mark Kimball. I remember how I felt, but which would be a difficult matter to describe the various thoughts, fears, and temptations that flashed through my mind when the principle was first introduced to me by my father, Heber C. Kimball, when one morning in the summer of 1843, without any preliminaries, asked me if I would believe him if he told me that it was right for married men to take other wives, can be better imagined when told. But suffice it to say, the first impulse was anger, for I thought he had only said it to test my virtue. My sensibilities were painfully touched. I felt such a sense of personal injury and displeasure, for to mention such a thing to me, I thought altogether unworthy of my father. And as quick as he spoke, I replied to him short and emphatically, no, I wouldn't. I had always been taught to believe it a heinous crime, improper and unnatural, and I indignantly, and I indignantly resented it. The next day the prophet called at our house, and I sat with my father and mother and heard him teach the principle and explain it more fully, and I believed it, but I had no proofs, only his and my father's testimony. I thought that sufficient and did not deem it necessary to seek for any further. Some more from Helen Mark Kimball. During the winter of 1843, there were plenty of parties and balls. Some of the young gentlemen got up a series of dancing parties to be held at the mansion once a week. I had to stay home as my father had been warned by the prophet to keep his daughter away from there because of the black legs and certain ones of questionable character who attended there. I felt quite sore over it and I thought it very unkind act in my father to allow my brother to go and enjoy the dance unrestrained with others of my companions and fetter me down for no girl loved dancing better than I did and I really felt that it was too much to bear. It made the dull school still more dull and I... And like a wild bird, I longed for the freedom that was denied me and thought myself a much abused child and that it was, un and that it was pardonable if I did murmur. So there you get a little bit of insight firsthand into the dilemma that a lot of these young women felt over this. Of course, polygamy has given us terrible public relations from the very beginning of this to even until now. If you look at how like the FLDS church has gone, and you see how it's played out, that's where polygamy is going to go. The numbers don't work out. It creates so many problems. I'm almost not sure what's worse for the young boys or the young girls in the FLDS. The boys, they call them the lost boys. They just churn out, I don't know what percent, but a large percentage, maybe 80% of their young men at age 18 they just churn them out and they call them the lost boys and they they have no place in their society because they can't get married there's no women for them to marry they have to leave and then the women they go younger and younger because all the young women are married and so they go down to age 14 and you have these child brides of age 14 with warren jeffs it's abusive and it's terrible there's just no future for polygamy we see like sister wives on tv and it's kind of glamorous and kind of fun but that's not how polygamy is going to go down in a in a continued religion over over many decades it just can't be sustained let's look at the stated reasons for the logic of why polygamy was necessary first there was a need to restore old testament polygamy as a restitution of all things that just doesn't make sense to me there's lots of weird things in the Old Testament. We didn't restore all of them. Polygamy in the Old Testament has never even appeared to be mandated by God, like it's some sort of religious practice. It's an odd view of the Old Testament to pull out of that that polygamy is a religious-sanctioned priesthood ordinance that needs to be restored. Another stated reason is to multiply and replenish the earth. I guess you could say that we had some success there. In Utah, there were some large polygamous families that produce a lot of children, and we have a lot of Latter-day Saints today because of it. I think that there could have been a lot of different ways that that could have happened without polygamy. I don't buy that as an important reason. If God is sending an angel to help with the end goal of having lots of Latter-day Saints, in the year 2020, I think he's a powerful enough God that he could have gone about that in a lot of different ways. 
Another stated reason is that it links families together through ceilings. I think that's a beautiful concept, and I think that is definitely something that was in Joseph's mind that he was trying to do that's not a bad thing. Another, that it's a trial for the saints. It's true we have a lot of trials on earth, and in the parable in the New Testament about the young man who was asked to sell all that he has and give to the poor and follow Jesus, that's a beautiful parable, and we're all asked to do really difficult things that are real tests of our faith, but those come about naturally and organically in life. I just don't believe that God works this way where he's going to give us something that goes against our traditional sexual morality in a way that it's going to test us and, and be a trial for us because it's so rotten and awful. Another stated reason is that it takes care of if there's an imbalance of women and the exaltation is necessary for all human beings. And if there's too many women, then that means that they need to be married to more than one man. I think that makes sense logically, but here's what I kind of think about that. It feels like it's a human solution to God's problem, and I just have this hunch that God's taking care of this concept in a way that humans can't even comprehend right now. I like to use this analogy that I think humans talking about God and the next life and understanding God sometimes is like two ants talking to each other, trying to explain to each other what humans do and how humans think and how humans operate. We can try to put it in our own language and try to make sense of things, but I have this feeling that when we finally do understand God, it's going to be like this whole new dimension thing, like whole new way of thinking, whole new way of understanding, and that there's no possible way we could have understood it all as humans doing a human experience. That's just my hunch. And I think it's awesome that we have a religion that's so specific in a lot of these details, but when we get too literal, it really trips us up. And this overthinking it of what if there's too many women in the celestial kingdom, that's overthinking it. We don't need to address an exception to every rule like that. Daniel Peterson quite often testifies of, Je of Joseph Smith's good character. And I agree with him. I'm inspired by Joseph Smith, and generally, I think he's a man of integrity and a man of great character. Joseph said, I do not nor never have pretended to be any other than a man subject to passions and liable without the assisting grace of the Savior to deviate from that perfect path in which all men are commanded to walk. He was charismatic. I think he was genuine. People loved him. I think his motives were usually pure. I think he wanted to do God's will. I love that interaction he had with W.W. Phelps, who they kind of had a little fight, and then they made up. And he quotes that famous line, Come on, dear brother, since the war is past, for friends at first are friends again at last. People loved Joseph. Joseph loved people, and people loved him back. Carolyn Pearson, even though she did that tough study on polygamy and its effects, she said she tried to keep Joseph at arm's length, but I found my arms around him time and time again. Beautiful statement from Carolyn Pearson. She also wrote in her book this really emotionally inspiring passage. I had been to Nauvoo several times, and each time I have traveled the road to Carthage and back, I've said to the driver, please don't talk. I just want to be with Joseph. It is impossible to travel that road and not watch the scenes unfold. To see the thousands of saints that lined the road to Nauvoo waiting and weeping as they finally see approaching the city of Joseph a single wagon carrying two oak boxes covered with brush to protect their contents from the sun. These onlookers made up a kind of Greek chorus of their own desolate thousands together crying the loss. Whatever you believe about this man, do not think that Joseph did not love his people. Never think that time after time he told them he would die for them and they knew and feared that he would. His people... To come by the thousands across oceans and land, met him, heard him, watched him, loved him. One wrote, but many had experienced that the prophet, quote, wrapped his arms around me and squeezed me into his bosom and said, George A., I love you as I do my own life. That is the kind of love that makes tragedy, makes thousands of people lining the road bewildered, that God had not come down from the heavens to save their prophet. They are a chorus of confusion without script, without meaning, asking why, what now, what can we do, where can we turn? I watch and I wait with them, for I still love Brother Joseph. 
I mentioned my ancestor, Nancy Naomi Tracy. She writes of this anecdote where Joseph came to borrow money from them one time, and then they had been called to go on a mission together. Her, She and her husband both together to go on a mission back to New York to try to talk to some of their family and convert some of their family. And the day they were going to leave, Joseph shows up at their house unannounced with the money to pay them back and to wish them well on their mission. To hear my ancestors talk about Joseph, they loved him. And for me, in a lot of ways, that's good enough. So Joseph's a complicated person. I think he's a good person. I think he has integrity, but I think he made some clear mistakes here. I don't believe in cancel culture. I think that people are usually very complex and that they can do very good things and they can also do very bad things. And I think that goes the same for a prophet. What was he trying to accomplish with this? Richard Bushman says, of course, it's very uncomfortable. No one's quite happy with the idea of Joseph having many wives. I don't think the business about 14-year-old girls or even marrying other men's wives is the real heart of the problem. The real heart of the problem is that he had one wife that he loved and he married other women, and that is a very difficult thing. The one train of thought that holds out some hope for us is by looking at Joseph's commitment or compulsion for bonding people. He wanted to create an entire human family. He wanted everyone to be connected to everyone else. And marriage was one way he saw of doing that. He didn't want just wives. He wanted children and brothers and sisters. He wanted to be immersed in family bonds. Terrell Givens said that Joseph sought to establish a timeless and borderless web of human relationships. And Richard Bushman also said, Joseph Smith began to imagine ecclesiastical and family kingdoms that would persist into eternity. I think when you really look at this, I think, yeah. It's about sex, but I think it's definitely about something more than sex. I believe there's a revelation there. I believe that Joseph has some powerful concept about eternal family and, and marriage and sealing and the connectedness of the human family through these bonds of sealing. And then I think most likely his human desires and weaknesses and temptations caused him to conflate that message in his head and pursue it in the wrong direction, which was through sexual polygamous relationships, instead of the focus on the doctrine of eternal family and sealing, which we now do as a church. We made it right, and we're now interpreting this revelation the correct way. So in 1890, Wilfred Woodruff received revelation and declared the manifesto. It's a great word. We should use that word a lot more. We ended polygamy, and it didn't end right away. It kind of trickled out, and there was still some polygamous marriages and ceilings done. And there were many people who kind of thought this was temporary and it was going to come back. But over time, it became cemented that we weren't doing this anymore. And then now in today's world, I think with some perspective looking back at this, we can more easily see this maybe as a blip and as a mistake and go forward, I think, in a more positive way. I think it would be healing to make some sort of formal announcement related to Section 132 or related to polygamy in general. I know that's very difficult for the church. And as soon as you apologize, you know, apologies are good. But as soon as you apologize for something like this, your enemies come out of the woodworks and make it and make things 20 times worse for you. So I understand the church's reluctance to make formal apologies for some of these things. I think one way we could kind of slowly transition is to allow females to be sealed in the temple to more than one man if they're, if they get divorced or if their husband dies and not need to get any kind of sealing cancellation. I think if we did that and then just stop talking about polygamy and when asked about it, just say we don't know and then just let it die. That seems like a reasonable path forward. I've been talking a lot about marriage and eternal family as being a beautiful doctrine that's very popular and, and generally accepted as one of our great unique doctrines in our church. But it is a difficult thing for a lot of people. The proclamation on family has been used as a weapon and a bully stick to beat down our LGBT members. And as a result of that, some of the progressive Mormon community that's in support of LGBT has started to view the proclamation in a negative way. I love the proclamation on family. I don't think it needs to be seen as an anti-gay document. I don't think it should be used as a weapon against LGBT members. And I hope that all Latter-day Saints will stop doing that and stop using it that way. 
I think we should view the proclamation on family as pro-family, pro-marriage. We are for marriage. We have a commitment to marriage. But when we say we have commitment to marriage, what we mean is we give resources to husband and wives and support each other and to support raising children and and to remind husbands and wives how to treat their spouses and to build strong marriages and to model strong marriages and strong families and to be a church where our members have a strong commitment to their personal marriages. I hope someday the prophet could receive a revelation that gays could be married and then the proclamation could be extended to our gay Latter-day Saints and that we could be the church that's for marriage, no matter if it's straight marriage or gay marriage. I think that would be a beautiful thing. And if you think that's impossible, maybe it is. But right here in this episode, we have a strong precedent for revelation by a prophet that comes out of left field that seems completely different. If you would have asked Latter-day Saints in the 1850s, 60s, if we would ever go against polygamy, and that it would no longer be allowed and practiced, impossible. Back then, polygamy was so core to what we taught. For our church back then, that was our defining aspect. That was the crux of the gospel to them, and they thought you could never separate that out. So they would be absolutely shocked to see our church today with no polygamy and with most members not even really thinking polygamy is important at all. So to change on that, to make a complete 180-degree turn on polygamy from where we were there then to where we are now, they would have thought that was impossible. And so never say never. We may think gay marriage is impossible now, but with a prophet and with continuing revelation, we never know what the will of the Lord is and what he may change. Before we wrap up, let's talk about a couple of other issues from the late Nauvoo period. April 7th, 1844, this is just a couple months before Joseph's martyrdom, he delivers the King Follett sermon. And in that, he introduces some very deep doctrine. And this was late in his life, and he introduced some doctrines that are huge doctrines that he didn't have a chance to really flesh out very well. And that is that God was once like man, that man may become like God. Also, the idea that we have a mother in heaven— that is married to Father in heaven. These are some of our most beautiful doctrines today that are very unique in our church, but I'm not sure that we ever really caught the vision of what Joseph's revelation was on this, and we seem to have a lot of different perspectives. Brigham Young took this and ran with it, and that's where he kind of came up with the Adam-God, all his Adam-God theory stuff that has now been denounced, and if you teach Adam-God, then you're considered apostate. But this was Brigham Young extrapolating what Joseph Smith was. Brigham Young also went in the direction teaching things very specifically. It's where we get the idea that some people— think that God must have had actual physical sex with Mary to create Jesus, and that all these things, there's a very material explanation for everything, basically. Brittany Hartley recently published a book, Mormon Philosophy Simplified, and I've heard her talk about this idea that we really want to talk about Mother in Heaven more. She's so important to our religion, so important to the females in our church and the males, too, that we have this feminine divine. It's a beautiful idea, a beautiful concept. And, and right now, a lot of women in the church are asking that we talk about Mother in Heaven more, that we want to talk about Mother in Heaven. We want to know if it's okay to pray to her. We want to know if we can teach about her. And that's a little controversial. It seems like maybe we're not supposed to. Every now and then, general authorities reference Heavenly Mother, especially in connection with Heavenly Parents. That's a very common phrase right now in General Conference. So we're not sure how much it's okay to talk about our Heavenly Mother. Well, Brittany Hartley says, be careful what you wish for, because if we start talking about Heavenly Mother more, it might come out in the same context of Brigham Young's extrapolation related to polygamy and and this idea that our God might have a lot of different wives. It's kind of a horrible idea to even talk about, but the idea that we might have multiple mothers in heaven and how to sort all that out. And that's just yucky for a lot of us to think about. We don't want to think about Mother in Heaven that way. It's a beautiful concept to have a feminine divine. And I don't know that we want to wrap it all up with that other stuff related to polygamy and all that. 
Lorenzo Snow gave the couplet, as man now is, God once was, as God now is, man may become. And I think that is ingrained enough in us that that has now pretty much become official doctrine. As part of the mainstreaming that started happening in the 1980s, it seemed like we moved away from this King Follett doctrine just a little bit. On the church's website, there's a FAQ question for reporters. Do Mormons believe that in exaltation, Mormons will have their own planet? And the answer is no, we do not believe that. I think that threw off a lot of people thinking, wow, I wait, I believe that. I thought that was taught. I thought that was, that's what I always thought. But I think all this is kind of speculative and we don't know for sure. Gordon B. Hinckley, when he had that famous interview where he was asked about King Follett Doctrine, he seemed to kind of put it off and say, well, I don't know if we know a lot about it. We don't teach it. We don't emphasize it. Some people thought that was kind of a public relations answer and that wasn't his true answer. He was just kind of giving an answer that would satisfy a non-LDS, but he might have a different answer for LDS. I'm not so sure. I think maybe he was being real. We don't know a lot about it, and it's not emphasized. I know you're waiting for my theory on this. Here's my theory. I think Joseph had a, some strong revelations. I think his brain, I think he was connected spiritually to God, and he had some revelations about a lot of things, and one of them was related to the feminine divine. He knew there was something there about a mother in heaven or a feminine divine that we needed to know as a church. I think he also had a revelation about eternal progress, about the idea that we are each a child of God, that we're connected to God in, in our substance and in our materiality. I think he knew there was something more, like how Terrell Givens talks about the early Christian theologians taught about divinization and theosis and deification, especially on the Eastern Orthodox side of things early in the Christian movement. These, they taught about these things and they've kind of been removed from Christianity. And I think Joseph Smith had a revelation that there's something important there about becoming joint heirs in Christ and that that's powerful and meaningful and in a way that we're not capturing yet. I think that's the revelation. And, and then he taught that in the way that he thought would be the right way to, like Greg Prince says, create symbols that helps his people share in that same revelation, divine understanding process. And he didn't have a lot of time to flesh it out. And then I think Brigham Young took it in a kind of a different direction. And we're not really sure. But I believe there's some powerful ideas in there that are that feel like they're true and beautiful ideas. Don Bradley once said, I'm not sure if this is original to him or if he was quoting something else. An idea might not be true, but by rejecting the idea, it would take us further away from the truth than by accepting the idea. This takes me back to that analogy with the ants talking about humans. And we may not have things exactly right in our picturing of God and our picturing of the eternities, but it's a way of teaching us something. And it's kind of the only thing we could understand. And so since we can't understand the true reality, accepting this other reality that we're teaching as doctrine in the Mormon church, it may not be absolutely true, but by rejecting it, it takes us further than what could be absolute truth. I don't know about that, but I like that idea. We want to be certain of everything, and we love certainty, and we love specificity, and we have a very specific set of doctrines in our church. And I think they are powerful and true, but when we obsess about them a little bit too literalistically, I think they start to lose some meaning. And if we can think about them a little bit more abstractly, I think they're more important to us, more meaningful in our lives. Okay, one more issue. Joseph Smith introduced the temple ordinances, and we know our temple ceremony is closely correlated to Freemasonry in the language, in the symbols, in the clothing, in the tokens, the pattern of covenant making. The whole thing is very closely tied to Freemasonry. And there's an idea that the reason that they're correlated is because both go back to ancient times. And Freemasonry got theirs from a line all the way back to the original Solomon's Temple because they were the ones working on this on the temple. And so they kind of caught the inside information and passed it down. Well, scholars now say that's not the case. 
both Freemasonry and the LDS Temple Endowment are modern. These things are modern. They don't go back to ancient. But that Joseph Smith had revelation on what to teach, the covenants that were important, the teachings that were important, and then he used the pattern of Freemasonry to use to make an impactful experience for for the members to make covenants and receive this teaching. We talked before about how I view the importance of covenants, and I think covenants are a critical addition that Joseph brought to Christianity. Okay, I think that's what we wanted to cover today. This was a difficult episode. I love Joseph Smith. I love this church. I love the restored gospel. I love the revelations that Joseph brought us. I believe Joseph had authentic religious spiritual experiences and that he was a prophet. I also think he made some mistakes along the way, and I also think polygamy was wrong. I'm trying really hard not to judge Joseph harshly for this episode, but then I'm also trying very hard not to treat it too softly because I think from a morality standpoint, it's important for us to acknowledge when things are wrong. It would be easier to just avoid this episode completely, but like I said, it's important for me to address all the CES letter issues. The people in my audience already know these issues. I'm trying to present a way to still condemn mistakes that humans made in our religious history, but to appreciate what we have and to provide a paradigm where we can focus on the truth and beauty and the lived experience of what we experience of what the church means to us in the here and now. So that's what we wanted to cover. And thank you for listening to the end. And please join us next time. Thanks.